Сын Hello, hello, everybody. What's going on? Welcome back to season two of The Deal with Nisim Black. That's right. We are back for the second season of this podcast, which I'm just so excited about. Season one was an amazing experience, and I got to speak to so many interesting people about the deal with all type of fascinating topics. I got to talk with Eve Barlow about anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. I got to talk with my friend Rudy Rockman and Harry Rosenberg about the Lost Tribes. And we closed out the season with none other than my man Yehoshaphat, a.k.a. Amari Stoudemire, about becoming a rookie again when he took up on himself the yoke of the Torah and the mitzvot. If you haven't listened yet, I recommend that you start at the beginning with my new friend, Kylie Younell, and just go from there. Really take a listen. She is awesome. Season two is going to be an amazing opportunity for us to continue our journey together. We got some guests that you've heard about, and we have some guests that you've never heard of before. But they are people that you need to know. In each conversation, we're going to expand our boundaries, and we're going to talk to more people about topics that are pressing and things that are essential to me. And we are so excited to have you with us back again to talk about the deal with me, Nisim Black. Now, for our first episode of season two, Dr. Sheila Nazarian, she is the founder of Nazarian Plastic Surgery. She is a plastic surgeon trained in all kinds of cosmetic surgery. She has degrees from Columbia University, Einstein Medical School, and even USC. She is the creator of an organic line of skincare products for pregnant and lactating women, and she stars in the Netflix documentary series, Skin Decisions. She is also an avid fighter against anti-Semitism, using her platform of half a million followers on Instagram to share helpful information on those spreading fake news about the Jews in Eretz Yisrael. So first off, I would like to say thank you so much, Doc, for joining us on the show. I really do appreciate having you. You're a little bit harder to track down than probably the president, but we got to you. I do think so. I feel like I'm so easily accessible. I'm too easily accessible. I need to put up some layers, you know? Sometimes it does feel that way. I feel that way also, too. Like, you know, I used to host maybe 30, 40 Yeshiva Bachman when I lived in Yerushalayim. Every week, every Friday, I had a big suda, just like that. You know how it starts. You give out your phone. You give your phone number to a few guys. Then the few guys gives it to another few guys. And before you know it, it's like on the wall at the Mir Yeshiva. Uh, I know about being way too accessible, completely. So I, I have a question for you. So you're a first-generation American, right? Yes, that's correct. Yep. So you have to tell me because of that. I, I'm very, very interested in in the shortest form because I know you, you get this a lot. I know when people get it a lot because I get it a lot also. What is your story? How did you get to where you are right now and what happened along the way? Yeah, no, I mean, it is an incredible story. But I think as you're going through it, you just feel kind of like it's just normal. But, you know, looking back on kind of the trajectory of my life, I think it's been truly extraordinary. And, you know, we lived in Iran. We were Persian Jews living in Iran. And my mom wanted me to be a citizen. So she came to New York when she was nine months pregnant to basically have me be born in New York. So in my family, I'm actually the only citizen. So um, after that, we stayed in New York for about just a month, went back to Iran. It was 1979, the year of the revolution. And so after that, we were kind of stuck. They didn't treat Jews great, but they also didn't let us leave. So it was kind of interesting. You know, if you got valedictorian, 
you wouldn't get the award. The, the next person who wasn't Jewish would get it just like super microaggressions. And then there was absolute macroaggressions where people were getting killed or jailed or, you know, things like that. So we kind of knew that it wasn't going well. And I think in 1985, when there was the Iran-Iraq war, a bomb landed very close to our home. And I totally remember the sirens going off and we would run to the windows in the middle of the night. My mom would be like, look at the beautiful fireworks, you know, but now seeing, you know, the, the bombs being launched at Israel, it, it looked exactly like that in Iran, um, but except it was coming from Iraq. So my father was a physician and he had had a lot of visiting professors come in. He had some connections. So he left the passports of my mom, my sister and I with the government and said he was going on a medical talk in Vienna. So he flew out to Vienna, lived with one of the professors who was his friend. And my mom, my sister and I arranged with smugglers to be smuggled across the Pakistani border. Um, basically, we went to the bazaar. They put us in the back of a covered like pickup truck with a cover kind of, or like almost like a hearse, but like a bigger version. And then we, we were on the bottom and they put corn on top of us to hide us. And then we went from the bazaar across the border, spent one night in the desert. Um, Actually, we got seen by the border guards at at a certain point and they started shooting at us and our lights were off. But as soon as they started shooting, we just turned the lights on and kind of zoomed. And the way we got away, there was a two mountains with like a ravine. And so two wheels of the truck were on one side, two wheels of the truck were on the other. And we went over it and the border police just thought that was too dangerous. So that's how we kind of got away. So we, we spent uh, one night in the desert. Once we made it past the Pakistani border, I remember we were at this like clay shack, basically, that was a bathroom. And there was just, it was basically just a hole in the ground. And I was too small to straddle the hole. Like you could totally just fall in. And in that bathroom, my mom told me we were going to America. And I was like, I'm going to meet Michael Jackson because we had so many like bootleg Madonna and bootleg Michael Jackson videos, like thriller, you know. <laughs> then we spent about uh, three months in Pakistan and we were with a bunch of people who were smuggled out of Iran. So we would have parties every night in the hotel and sort of like hung out until our visas came through. And then once they did, we went to Vienna. And after not seeing my dad for a few months, we uh, reunited with him. I was seven years old at the time, but I remember seeing him and he had shaved his beard. So I didn't recognize him. And then he started speaking. And then I recognized that it was my dad. And then together we this is crazy. Yeah. Together we came to America and I always tell the story of like, I, I came in the first grade. I didn't speak any English. I was in ESL for about three months and just got a lot of teasing. I was really skinny. And back then, like you weren't allowed to do anything about your mustache. You weren't allowed to shave your legs because it meant you were trying to be attractive or you were going to be promiscuous. So I was just like, really didn't fit in. And then also I was that girl in class that was like always raising her hand, you know, always had the answer kind of. So it was, it was a little rough, um, making friends. And I just felt like people were always like using me for something like using me to copy my homework or using me to like (laughs) get the answers to something. And then, you know, slowly kind of made my way merit-based through the ranks of higher education, got into a really prestigious private school when I didn't even know private schools were like all the smart kids left in the seventh grade. I'm like, where are you going? They're like private school. I'm like, what's private? private school. So then I went in the eighth grade when they were like only accepting five people. Then from there, I went to Columbia Mm -hmm. University. Then from there, I went to Yeshiva's medical school, Albert Einstein, um, and then got into USC plastic surgery, which was probably like the best match my medical school had ever had ever had because plastic surgery is really hard to get into. And then spent three years in general surgery at USC in California, uh, did two years of business school in between general surgery and plastic surgery, and then did three years of plastic surgery, came out. Oh, and I 
I got married my first year of residency, had three kids during surgical residency, which was difficult and came out, started my own private practice and knew immediately I wanted to do TV. So I just started making YouTube videos like this. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew my name. Everybody was like, who the F are you? So I was just like, you know what? I wow. went to business school. I know how this works. This marketing, <laughs> you know, shtick works. So I basically just started making videos and then yeah. Google owns YouTube. So me putting out a ton of YouTube videos when nobody else was doing that got my ranking on Google so high. I'm sorry. I just, I'm, I'm listening to it and I'm like perplexed at how we jump from like being shot at to, to YouTube. But the thing is, it's almost like a blessing that you went through everything that you went through because you were grinding. You understand what that, that's what we call grinding. I've been grinding for 40 years. <laughs> wow. It's like crazy. And the other thing too, like, you know, I lost my mom to breast cancer when wow. I was 16 years old and that caused me to be very independent very early on. Like I remember the first time I went for my driver's practice, we went on the freeway, we were on Mulholland, we were like on these crazy winding streets and it just forced me into independence. And I have my own nonprofit conference every year. And one of the speakers a couple of years ago said something really interesting. He said, if I love someone, I wish them hardship. Mm. If I love someone, I wish them challenges because those are the things that right. make you grow and give you resilience and give you grit and really propel you to success. Because have you ever met someone super successful that doesn't have a great story? No, it's true. You know, it's a very famous thing. Without pain, there's no gain. And also along the lines of what, you know, what you just said, as Rabbi Nachman him, himself, he I remember after he came from one of his journeys, maybe... Maybe it was his journey to Eretz Israel, and he came back from Israel, and he said, I brought for you guys a gift. He's looking at all of his chassid, and when I, I, I bring you poverty. He <laughs> says, I bring you, I bring you poverty. I want, you know, I want you to be impoverished, you know, because when you're in that place, in the lowest place, you can't do nothing but, but give your all, right? So it, it, it is something about having that struggle, and without it, you just don't see it. I always tell people like this also. Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player to play the game, not because of the Michael Jordan who won the championships. It was the one who was killing himself in off-season workouts, right? He was working harder than everybody else. You mentioned Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson was putting in work that nobody else was putting in, not to mention his home life that we all seen on American Dream, which happens to be one of my favorite movies. But we seen that what he had to go through in order to be Michael Jackson, what Moses had to go through to be Moses, it's like, it's very telling of what success is and what one has to be willing to do in order to achieve success. So that's amazing. I think also as like a woman, it's really interesting to go through it. Like my parents never made me feel like a girl. Like I think my mom really wanted a boy. So she just raised me as a boy. I don't know. (laughs) But I think like, you know, navigating that as a woman has been really interesting too. Cause I never really like realized I was at a disadvantage in any way. I actually think being a woman is an advantage, you know, in, in today's culture and like, it's a differentiator, right? For sure. But I think it's just been really interesting to sort of go through it and see through a lens of a woman who never really I don't know remember that movie where that guy was blind and he was on the subway train he goes I'm black <laughs> right so it was kind of like that I was like wait I'm not white and wait I'm, I'm a woman but you know I, I definitely do see like a lot of the online bullying like there's a study that just came out that showed that female surgeons are double as likely to be harassed online wow I was so focused that I didn't even notice people were like putting roadblocks in my way I was just like roadblock jump it hurdle like the hurdles 
hurdles in the Olympics. I was like, hurdle, hurdle, hurdle. It's just part of the game, you know? Right. No, I understand this. Let me ask you really quickly. Plastic surgery, you see it as often being a form of empowerment, and you're all about empowering people. So can you tell me what cosmetic surgery, what it means to you? Why do you think it was the right decision for people to make it and to do it? Well, I mean, I think like what people think about plastic surgery, especially because it has been in the past, like pretty expensive and maybe not accessible to all. So just like anything else, you know, just like Israel, they just believe what's being shown to them on TV, right? They've never actually been there. Right. So, you know, with our Netflix show, Skin Decision, we really just wanted to not make a circus of it and really highlight people who are getting plastic surgery for the reasons that like 90% of people are getting plastic surgery, not the 10% that you're seeing on all these funny shows on TV. Right. You know, we really wanted to highlight like a gunshot victim or an acne, um, severe acne patient or a mother of quadruplets or a dancer who had three kids and literally looks like she's pregnant with abdominal hernias. Like, you know, and it, and it doesn't even have to be that. And so I'm yeah. like, it could just be a breast augmentation, but now your body is more proportional and you feel better about yourself. Like I always tell people when you feel good, you, you know, you right. do good and it has ripple effects to everyone surrounding you, whether it's your kids, your husband. So I would love to say, oh yeah, like love who you are on the inside and what you look on the outside doesn't matter, but it's just not true. And and biologically and scientifically, it's not true. You know, there's a reason why peacocks have feathers like that. There's a, there's reasons why beauty in nature and beauty in flowers, it's about survival. And we are genetically hardwired to appreciate beauty. So to tell someone who doesn't feel beautiful, you should feel guilty about doing something about it when they're healthy and the, the procedure is safe to do then I think you're really, it's almost like telling someone not to eat well. It's telling someone not to, not to exercise. Like if you can live better and improve your quality of life, and that's going to help you do more then it, then that's a blessing. And I think that that's the real reason why people get plastic surgery. And that was kind of our message with the show. And I'll tell you with the show, we really changed how people see plastic surgery. I mean, it really was a paradigm shift in my profession people from all around the world were messaging me like this gives me permission to feel okay about doing doing something for myself or i was getting my colleagues messaging me i had two people show up today because of your show you know so it was kind of like just allowing people to look at it more as self care and mental health rather than seeing it as vanity or narcissism wow that's amazing so let me ask you this glamour.com said that your show Skin Decision is equally about healing and trauma as about looks and that it paints a positive and realistic picture of cosmetic surgery procedures and what they can do. And this is what you were trying to accomplish. When you decided to go to Netflix, this was your thought, was that I'm going to go and change lives. Now, here's my question on top of it. So when I think of plastic surgery, first thing I think of is like, you know, not to throw it out there, but like Michael Jackson's nose. I don't even come to think about any of the things that you just said. So I think that there's, I don't know how fine the line is, but there's a line between what is subjective beauty and what is objective beauty, right? Certain things that you mentioned, like a peacock, sometimes there's a subjective beauty that begins to change over time. At one point, you know, when people were bigger, you know, long, long time ago, then that was more attractive. That obviously also meant wealth. Now it's went through sort of a season of where it's best to be super thin. And is it the same thing for you? Is it the same coaching when you feel somebody's coming in where they just, you know, I want to look like, I don't know, whoever it is. How do you balance it? Yeah, no, Nisab, I think you, you touched on like so many different things. So, okay. 
Well, number one, I think branding as a plastic surgeon is incredibly important. So I always message on my Instagram or website or any interviews I do or TV. My hashtag is natural by Nazarian or my breast augmentation is known as hashtag SBQ, which stands for small breast queen. So you have to message what your aesthetic is and what you find beautiful so that you attract people that share that aesthetic. So if somebody comes in, ask, well, nobody even comes in asking me for large breasts because I'm the small breast queen. So it's like, and nobody's ever come in asking to look like a celebrity because I don't message that. I've literally never, ever, ever had anyone bring a picture of somebody else ever into my practice. Well, how many plastic surgeons can say that? None. So it's basically messaging that we're trying to optimize you and we're trying to, you know, refresh you. We're not trying to make you look like somebody else. And I won't do that. And I message that so strongly that those people don't even come to me, which is great because I only want sane people. I don't want crazy people in my practice because also like I don't get out much. You know, by the time I get home, like I've been doing basically therapy, whether it's with a needle, a laser or a knife all day that when I come home, I kind of don't even want to see people anymore. You know, I'm like. So I think that's like one part of it is like branding so that you attract the people that appreciate your values. Now, the other thing you talked about is changing an aesthetic. And it's interesting because I just did a course this this past week. It was a three-day course. We had eight surgeons from all over the world fly in. So we can go over uh, this special kind of surgery. Uh, I brought a really amazing physician from Bogota, Colombia up. And we all, we, we did a course together for these eight surgeons. So he went over this changing aesthetic and it's really interesting how it went from like the Marilyn Monroe to the Twiggy to the, you know, and what you're talking about and like the great depression being a little overweight was better. And then it was this small waist. So I think what I tell my patients is that when you're redoing your home, you don't go buy a couch that has paisley print on it. You don't go buy a couch that's plaid. You buy a neutral couch and then you change the pillows, right? So it's the same thing with your body or your face. You want to do something that's proportional to you, that's respectful of your anatomy, and then you can change your clothes. But your body is not clothing that you can go donate it and go buy more, you know, 10 years from now. So, and I don't want people to be under my knife every two years. Maintenance, yes. You know, lasers, yes. Collagen building, yes. But surgery, no. And so I literally have people that like had liposuction of their butt 20 years ago, and now they're coming in for me to put fat back into their butt. So it's just like, if you just would have stayed proportional, you wouldn't have had to do this. But I think the aesthetic currently Nassim is not the super skinny. The, the aesthetic right now is the athletic and the healthy. So I think people are coming in, even if it's for liposuction, you know, the course that we did was to etch out muscles by doing specific liposuction. So for example, on men in the arms, we'll etch this out, etch this out and make this a really sharp angle. So it makes the triceps look bigger. So we're strategically liposuctioning fat from certain areas to make them look more healthy. And I think that to me is the best aesthetic. And I don't think looking healthy is going to go out of style anytime soon. So, you know, even on the runways in Paris, if you have a BMI, um, which is a height to weight ratio, less than 18, you, you can't walk the catwalks in Paris anymore. So they're not even allowed to be anorexic looking anymore. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So it's been, it's been a really interesting kind of thing, but to me, that athletic look, like, I don't want that big butt. 
I don't think, I think that's a trend and I don't do trends. I don't do this cat eye thing that's happening right now because 10 years from now when the almond eye is in, you're basically screwed. What are you going to do? So I basically like, I don't do any trends. I go for harmony. I go for proportions and I'm respectful to that person's anatomy so that they can have longevity with their results. And just sort of like I could do one thing and they can go out into the world and conquer it. That's kind of my thing. And I think that's why people fly in to see me like 60% of my patients now are flying in, right? Because they know they're not going to look like Michael Jackson. And if they're asking me, even if they're asking me to do it, I say, no, you're in the wrong place. Walk down the hall five steps because those patients become my billboards, right? Those patients become my little ambassadors. So if somebody comes in, this is like a big thing that actually like got a little attention, but I had an influencer come in with massive lips and she wanted me to do under her eyes. And I said, I can't do under your eyes until you let me reverse and deflate your lips because nobody's going to know anything happened here because all my results are natural, but they're going to see your lips. You're going to tell them I'm your doctor and they're going to think I did that to you. And that's not good for me. So if someone even walks in looking unnatural, I won't accept them as a patient until they let me make them look natural. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. So shifting a little bit because you got to be like, thinking about plastic surgery. So you have a lot of followers on Instagram. And of course, we're going to talk about this. Now, you use that audience to try to spread truth about Israel, anti-Semitism. And what made you realize that you personally had to step up and start fighting that fight? Because, you know, you're a plastic surgeon, right? Most people say, well, you know, this is what you do, you know, stay in your lane. Not only that, you're on Netflix. So what made you decide to step into politics or rather social issues? Uh, I actually started speaking up about, you know, anti-Semitism about a year ago because my daughter was applying Mm -hmm. to my high school and I was like, oh my God, she's going to be in college in four years. And in the States, it's become a little toxic, you know, and I'm like, she's not even going to want to say she's Jewish. A little. Yeah, a lot, a lot toxic. Yeah. (laughs) But I was in even my school, Columbia University. The reason why my father let me leave L.A. Because back then, Persian girls did not leave their families unless they were moving into their husband's house. So the reason why my dad let me go to Columbia University even was that there was a 30 percent Jewish population at that school. And now it's ranked the most anti-Semitic campus in the country. Wow. You know, they're, they're painting swastikas on the steps. Like one of the, te- you know, teacher's offices got broken into and they spray painted swastikas all over her office. I mean, it's really, really bad and they're not really addressing it very well. They've lost a lot of their donors. A lot of the Jewish kids on campus do not feel safe. They pass BDS, like all this crazy. So I just started speaking about it about a year ago. And then when this conflict happened, I saw my colleagues who had like 100,000 followers, 120,000 followers, just, you know, spreading that same narrative, those five words. They all love to use, you know, apartheid, ethnic cleansing. And I was just like, oh, hell no. I'm like, I have more followers than all of you. So I'm about to, you know, whatever. (laughs) I literally turned my Instagram stories and posts into truth telling, basically. Because, you know, none of these people have been to Israel. Otherwise, they would be saying the things that they're saying. Right. I literally like in the first day lost 3000 followers. And then I was just like, you know what? I don't care. Like I need to be able to like live with myself and sleep well at night. And if I'm quiet and I allow what happened to Iran to happen here, 
without a fight, mm-hmm. I won't be able to live with myself. You know, and it always starts with words, you know, in Iran, whether it's Iran, whether it's the Holocaust, whatever, it always starts with words and it always starts with the news station. Propaganda. Propaganda. And if people hear it enough, they believe it to be true because they don't know any better. They've never been there. Right. And so I just knew that I had to do my best to kind of like fight the good fight because if the U.S. goes down, there is no more safe haven. Right. It's true. So that was kind of why I started just like slamming hard. And what was interesting was in the beginning, just got a ton of hate, lost a ton of followers. People were like, stay in your lane, all of that. And I was afraid like Netflix would cancel me. And what was really interesting is that I would say I'm like probably net 5,000 people down still. So for all, all of you people listening, help me out. <laughs> but um, so many cool opportunities started flowing in. So many cool people I got to meet. Um, I was hearing from huge politicians. I was hearing from huge people in Israel, you know, about like, let's do a collab. Let's do this. You know, I want to work with you. Like, I'm so proud of you. And it was just sort of like taught me a couple of things. Like speaking your truth is so rare these days that you become a hero. Like I was literally a hero for just like speaking my mind. Like that's how. No, it's true. The other thing I learned is I don't actually know anyone that's gotten canceled because of, yeah, I don't know anyone who's gotten canceled for speaking up against anti-Semitism. No one. Do you? Do you know anyone who's gotten canceled? No, I don't. No, you don't. It doesn't exist. It doesn't. And I think there's this like fear because of our collective trauma about these things like we're going to get attacked, we're going to get canceled, we're going to lose business. It just doesn't happen. My patients were literally in tears hugging me, thanking me for being the voice of reason. Right. You know, and I'm not even like crazy, like political. I'm kind of right in the middle where I think 75% of the world lives. But it's just this like loud two majorities on either side that are like, you know, if you're not with us, you're against us. So it's like, well, I'm kind of with you, but I'm like not with you here, which is like what discussion is. And you know, what college is about. It's about nuanced discussions and hearing other people's perspectives. But now if you speak a different perspective, you're racist. Right, right. Or you're not woke or you're whatever. And it's just like, it's cut the conversation so that people are only hearing this like very extreme narrative. Right. That doesn't represent the majority of people at all. Yeah, I always say like the most dangerous thing you can have from 2020 into 2021 is an opinion. Yeah. That's the most dangerous thing that you can have in your pocket is an opinion. It really, it's unacceptable, really, you know, and just seeing how many people and how much society has just changed. You know, if you have children, the the amount of prepping you have to do to keep them politically correct and all this. I, like, I can't do that. Yeah. And the funny thing, you know, the definition of privileged to me is being able to tell someone to change the English language to accommodate your feelings. Right. That is the definition of how lucky you are to live in a place that will change the language to accommodate your feelings. Very powerful. Go live in Iran for a day. Right, right, right. See how how they accommodate your feelings. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's why the people that are immigrants are like the people that appreciate America so much because we know the alternative. Whereas like the Americans are just so they just sound like little brats, you know, that are so <laughs> thank you for keeping it real. <laughs> like, I'm just like, do you understand how lucky you are to live here? Like, literally, I went to Nike yesterday and I bought a USA jacket that like matches the ones the Olympians wear. Cause I'm just like, so happy to be here. Did you see what just happened in Afghanistan? Like the people like literally there's a plane about to fly out. They are climbing 
hanging and hanging off of the of the staircase that goes to the entrance of the airplane trying to get on the airplane it was i saw it last night and i literally like to the i just like it was the saddest thing i have ever seen i've seen a lot that is just pure human desperation Wow, 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 wow. You know, and it's just like in looking at my nine-year-old was in, you know, laying in bed with me and I just hugged her and I said, we're so lucky to be here. Right. We're so lucky to have this roof over our head. We're so lucky to have our freedoms. And for anyone not to appreciate that in light of what's happening everywhere else in the world is just so ungrateful and it bothers me. No, I understand. And I want to ask you this. So what is the most silly and the most, I would say, most consistent lie that you see online about Israel and about Jews in general? I mean, I think probably the most consistent lie is like the apartheid claim, um, which is like, you know. Right. But I think also the other thing that really bothers me is how there's a double standard and like people are attacking right. the only democratic country in the region when, when, and then they're just completely silent on Afghanistan or completely silent on Syria or Lebanon or, you know, even Iran. It has been a, a whirlwind of misprioritizing things also at that, right? I'm 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 gonna tell you, you know, my one of my personal issues, Black Lives Matter, right? Okay, let's Oh my god. Let's, have you seen me posting? <laughs> no, I have not seen it yet. Sorry, but I I I see I see the name and I and I'm ready to throw up already. So that's probably why I didn't see it. No, I mean I mean I've had this talk, you know, I just had Joshua Washington on my live and we talk about how, you know, Black Lives Matter as an organization is just disgusting and Right. You know, somebody asked, how do we support Black Lives Matter without supporting this this horrible organization that even black people don't support? You know, I feel like the people supporting Black Lives Matter are guilty white people. Right. Right. But even the black people are like, that's a dangerous organization. Like all my patients that are black, they're like, Woo, not that organization. You know? Right. So, I mean, it's a complete joke. It's misprioritizes the same thing that you're saying with Israel. Let's prioritize black people who are killed by the police, which let's even make it a propaganda because not every single person that was killed was innocent, whether or not they had a weapon or didn't have a weapon. Right. And then on top of that, let's ignore the thousands upon thousands of black-on-black crime, and let's ignore how many black fathers are not in the home if you're really trying to help black lives. Not even that, Nissim. Like, there is still an African slave trade happening. Uh, yeah, for sure. Let's talk about that. I don't think anyone knows right, right. that there is an Arab-African slave trade happening still happening right right but let's focus on this like rare like literally in in i mean joshua washington went over it right i mean it is pretty rare to have a white officer kill a black person you know with no cause yes it happens yes it's wrong yes we should stop that but compared to the other black deaths happening in our country but what they're doing and what I talk about, what I've been saying, like screaming from the hills, is what they have done to the Palestinian people is weaponize them, politicize them, and keep them suffering so that they can continue to get aid money. They can continue to get exactly. you know, their political agenda pushed forth. And now they're trying to do with Black people in the United States. Right, right, right. They don't actually care about them. 
They're just trying to weaponize them and politicize them for their own gains. Somebody wants to make money. That's all it is. At the end of the day, you know, like this, I mean, anybody that pays even just a little bit attention to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you will see that the whole entire thing just does not add up, you know, compared to what's going on online. It's just, it's really silly. I really take my hat off uh, to you really for fighting. It's, uh, it's, it's a really huge thing. I always, myself, I struggle with that. But there's like, there's a lot of things that are just not true going on and it's hard to not speak out about things. And And I never know when it's time to pull the trigger or not to pull the trigger. And, and I'm starting to see more and more. There's just no way to get people to understand because they're being bombarded with lies. But I think Nissan, the thing is like they they're doing polls in the U.S. and it still shows that you know, about three quarters of the population in the U.S. get it. They're just quiet. There's a silent majority is what you're saying. So I think the other thing what we need to realize, there is a silent majority for sure. It's been shown in polls. I think you're just hearing, you know, the really loud minority. But the scarier thing for me is our universities. You know, it's it's the indoctrination happening in schools and in our universities. I mean, it's in the schools. All the, not even getting to the universities. You're talking about the regular, the regular schools, elementary schools already. Yeah, that's right. And it, but it started in the universities, you know. And I think it's about kind of getting that back. And I think we have to attack this very intelligently. And we are behind the eight ball for sure. But you know, it's about getting more politicians in. It's about getting more professors in. It's about getting more social media influencers. It's about bots. It's about hackers. They have hackers. Like, and and also there's you know there's the Apex, but there's also like the Shield of Davids that will go find dirt on the professors. You're not going to fire that anti-Semitic professor. We will go dig up dirt on them so that you have no choice but to fire the anti-Semitic professor. So, I mean, and it's kind of been my mission for the last, you know, few months to get people that are working on and have similar mindsets together so that they're not working alone, but in tandem and that their mission and their project become successful because they're not working in a vacuum, but rather, you know, they have the connections to work together, whether it's the brain trust or funds. So here's here's my last question, even though I like want to go on for like another hour, to be honest. <laughs> I want to know from you with all of your, you know, speaking up and fighting the good fight, what is the most powerful moment you've had in your outreach to try to teach people about anti-Semitism? Do you feel like you ever taught somebody something? Do you ever feel like you changed somebody's mind? Um, if, if so, what, what was that time? I mean, I think I changed a lot of people's minds. I got a ton of messages uh, from people. I think there's people that like you can never change their mind because they're literally born to hate Jews. So it's very difficult to change those people's minds. Yeah, I don't even like waste my energy on, on those people. There's a lot of people that were like, you know what? I really didn't know what to believe, but thank you for being the voice of like both sides so that I can get kind of a better opinion. But I've also, I think one of the most powerful moments is during the conflict itself, I had so many young people in bomb shelters in Israel messaging me saying, wow. you are the only light I have in my darkness. Like your, your Instagram posts and your support is the only light I have. And I think that's kind of been the most powerful part of it is I was talking to uh, Rudy Rockman about it too. It's just one by one, you know, it's not that you're going to change, you know, the masses opinion, but one by one, Right. People will start to see the truth, you know, eventually if they're open to it. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's it's been worthwhile, not just because I sort of was fulfilling a passion of my own, 
it's been worthwhile with opportunities to meet people like you uh, and, you know, state senators and people in Israel um, of influence and really all around the world. Uh, That's been amazing. It's given me permission to speak my truth without fear. And I was really afraid. I wasn't like this like blind, insane person that was like, I'm just going to speak my truth and F everybody else. You know, I, it does matter what other people think, but it's just been such a blessing to be surrounded now with like-minded people who share my core values instead of being surrounded by thousands of people who don't really know who I really am and might not really like me for my true self to be surrounded by such intelligent, passionate people that share my core values. That's been like the greatest gift. And I can be 100% myself and know that I am accepted and honored for that. So I highly recommend it. Right. Listen, what you just said is like, it's it's so powerful. I was just having this discussion. I think even when I was talking to Fat Man Scoop about it, it's like, you want to be loved by people because they love you genuinely. And you don't want to be loved by people, you know, um, because of what they think you're supposed to be. And Nissim, I'll tell you the other thing, too, is the other thing I learned is that you cannot have people obsessed with you if you don't have people who hate hate you. Right. Like you can't be middle of the road and have people be obsessed with you. That's right. That's totally true. That's fire. Drop the mic. This has been amazing. I really do appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. And I wish you success in everything you're doing uh, in the in the surgery room and also and so also in what you're doing online and, and helping out Claudia Sorrell. You're one of our fighters. You're, you're Queen Esther for us. So I really do appreciate you doing that. And uh, please keep fighting the good fight and stay in touch. <laughs> Will do. You too. Stay in touch. Thank this you. was such Thank a pleasure. You. Thank you so much. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, this conversation for me was beyond just a conversation. It was it was motivation. It was beyond inspiring. Um, I got to stay on a little bit even after the actual interview and talk with the doctor some more. And I can't begin to tell all of you how much she's inspired me and how much she's empowered me to go out and speak your truth no matter what because at the end of the day all you have is really your truth and she's really a soldier she's fighting i really felt the story of where she came from and where she is now if that isn't the classic rap story rising up coming from nothing and becoming something and what that does to not only empower me as an individual but what that's going to do for for people not only jewish people non-jewish people for women to see what she's gone through and just to really look at the beauty of Everything that we've been given, especially, you know, those of us who are American, I think it should be inspiration for everybody. And as you know, I love to leave you guys with the song. So I think the song most appropriate for this, just talking about coming from nothing and rising and being determined. It's a classic song of mine. It's called A Million Years. Please enjoy it if you never heard it before. Um, those of you who are familiar with my work, you probably know this one very well. So sing along. And uh, until next time, dealers, please only Go from strength to strength and be strengthened.
that I owe you Cause I was in that Cooper's Nova Until you came and dust off and revealed my spark I was searching for the essence of existence Wanted to find you, but I didn't see an entrance I came from a distance where everything was different I called out to you and you showed me that you listened From then we became best friends I gave my all to you and you showed me who I am I am staying by your side To bask in your light and your mercy I reside There's another door to help me achieve everything I need and more, more, nothing more, nothing less than going to a boat trying to hear that voice from heaven, your direction. Thank you so much for listening to The Deal with me, Nisim Black. This is a Soul Shop original podcast. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Gilad Brownstein. Please follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at The Deal with NB. And subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast content. Please share this with your friends so that they can get this raw and riveting stuff from me, yours truly. God's me. Soul Shop.